Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The Jewish community finds itself in the time after Passover called the Omer. The second night of Passover, and up until Shavuot, is called the Omer. The Omer in the Hebrew text, literally means a measure, and was an offering of the first of the new grain harvest, which was brought to the temple on the 16th of Nisan, the second day of Passover. The Torah commanded that seven weeks be counted from the time of the offering of the Omer. As it says in Leviticus 23, from the day after Sabbath, referring to Passover, that's for another show, why it's called Sabbath, the day that you bring the sheaf of wave offering, you shall keep count until seven full weeks have elapsed. You shall count 50 days until the day after the seventh week. Then you shall bring an offering of new grain to God. You shall bring from your settlements two full loaves of bread as a wave offering. On that same day, you shall hold a celebration. That same day meaning the 50th day, and it shall be a sacred occasion for you. Because of this ritual counting, the period between Passover and Shavuot has come to be known as the Omer. In fact, Shavuot does not have a fixed calendar date on the Bible, but rather falls on the day after the completion of the Omer counting. That is, the 50th day after the Omer offering is brought. This period is also known as Sephirah, literally the counting, because in traditional Jewish homes, there is firata omer, the counting of the days of the omer. So that's interesting. While all other biblical holidays seem to have a fixed date, Shavuot, of which we're beginning to think about now, um, doesn't have a fixed date. It always comes 50 days after the 15th of Nisan, uh, depending on um, when that is in the calendar. Why is it important to count the days from the beginning of the Omer until Shavuot? Well, Leviticus does not state a reason. Of course, the simplest explanation has to do with the harvest, which it does speak about. The bringing of the Omer was the first harvesting of the new grain crop. This harvesting continued throughout the Omer period and was brought to climax at Shavuot with the offering of Shtei Halechem, two loaves of bread, as Leviticus says. Now, many of you know that Shavuot in the Bible is not connected with the giving of the Torah at Sinai. The association of Shavuot with the revelation at Sinai appears to belong to a much later tradition than the biblical tradition. In the Torah, Shavuot is an agricultural festival marking the end of the harvest began on Passover. Its name, Shavuot, means weeks, refers to the seven weeks of the Omer counting. And according to the biblical verses that I shared with you above from Leviticus, it was forbidden to eat the new grain crop until the Omer was offered on Passover. 
Similarly, the tradition states that the meal offerings in the temple could not be made from the new grain crop until after the offering of the two loaves on Shavuot. Thus, an Omer offering on Pesach allowed people to eat from the new grain crop, and the new two-loaf offering on Shavuot allowed for sacrificial offerings from the new grain crop in the temple. The Omer period, therefore, was a marking of the time of harvest with its concern for the successful crop. The offerings that began and concluded it expressed the hope for the harvest and also expressed a thanksgiving to God for the land and its bounty. So Shavuot became intrinsically connected in the Bible to land and to gratitude for the bounty of the land. Over time, as Shavuot became more and more associated with the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai, other reasons emerged for linking Passover and Shavuot. According to one tradition, the Israelites in the desert were so eager to receive the Torah, they counted the days from Exodus until Sinai. Others see in Shavuot the culmination of the experience of the Exodus, for the consequence of the deliverance from Exodus from Egypt was not simply a free people, but to transform them into Am Kedushah, holy nation. The covenant between God and Israel, which began in Egypt, is then clearly spelled out in all its details at Sinai and accepted by the Israelites. Sinai, the revelation of Sinai, is the answer to the preeminent question, for what purpose were the Israelites freed from Egypt? Sinai gave them goals to strive for and obligation to fulfill. They were transformed to Avdei Pharaoh, far, saves a Pharaoh to Avdei Hashem, servants of God. Thus Pesach, without Shavuot, would have been incomplete. And the Omer, that counting of weeks, is the chain that links the two together. Now the Kabbalists, those mystical uh, rabbis of the uh, 12th through uh, 18th century uh, saw the Omer period as one of preparation for the great event at Sinai. In this period, those who had lived for so long as slaves surrounded by Tumah, immortality, of the Egyptians had to transform themselves into people worthy of receiving the gift of Tover. For the mystics, each day of this 50-day period was an ascension from one of the 49 levels of the impurity of Egypt. This was expressed by seeing each day as a combination of the aspects of the two mystical spherot attributes, such as the attribute of chesed, mercy, and that of chod, glory. These are the attributes of God, and if that sounds a bit esoteric, that is what mysticism is, a little esoteric. Now, a sharp controversy existed between the rabbis and a variety of Jewish sects over the interpretation of the day after the Sabbath. You will remember the verse commanding the counting of the Omer reads, after the Sabbath, we begin counting. The Sabbath here, according to the ancient rabbis, refers not to the seventh day of the week, but rather to the first festival night of Passover. Hence, the Omer count begins on the second night of Passover. 
various groups, beginning with the first century Sadducees and continuing with the Karaites of the Middle Ages, interpreted the word Sabbath in a different way. Most commonly, it was interpreted as the first Sabbath after the beginning of Passover. So that would be um, Shabbat Chol HaMoed, Passover, the intermediate Sabbat in the seven-day Passover. The implication of this is that Shavuot, which falls on the day after the Omer count of 49 days, would always occur on a Sunday. It would also occur in different days of the months since the first Shabbat during Passover would be, for instance, the third day of Passover, or it could be the fifth day. This argument over the Omer was one of the basic differences between the Sadducees and the group of early rabbis known as the Pharisees. But other interpretations of the Omer verse exist as well. The Falashes of Ethiopia interpret the words to mean the day after Passover is over. Thus, they celebrate Shavuot on Sivan 12 each year rather than on Sivan 6, which is when most Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jews observe it. This polemic prompted the new early rabbis to emphasize their interpretation and the ritual surrounding the cutting of the barley to be brought as the Omer offering. The ritual is described in detail in the Talmud, which tells us that the barley was harvested near Jerusalem and then brought to the temple, where it was ground made into meal offering. It was then ritually waved before the altar. A ritualized formula of questions and answers was recited by the harvesters, emphasizing the rabbi's opinion that the second night of Passover was the day after Shabbat. This was felt so strongly by the rabbis that even if the second day fell on Sabbath, when harvesting is prohibited by the Sabbath law, harvesting of the Omer still took place. Now, I hope you followed all of that kind of arcane counting about the Omer. In most Jewish homes today, the Omer is not counted. It's counted in synagogue for them. But In the midst of this counting comes a very interesting semi-holiday. And I want to spend the time that's left with me, to me today, to talk a bit about this holiday. So let's switch gears from the biblical account of counting to a different notion of ritual observance in Judaism. Tradition, Orthodox tradition, mandates during the 50 days that it is an observance of mourning. It is forbidden to marry, have your hair cut, or attend concerts during this period. Again, I suggest this is for the most traditional members of the Jewish community. Some people do not shave. While these practices may date from Talmudic times, Authorities as late as Maimonides in the 11th century seem unsure of them. The reasons for this mourning or understanding mourning are very obscure. Now, here's where we come to. The most common explanation derives from a Talmudic passage stating that thousands of disciples of Rabbi Akiba, 2nd century of the Common Era, died in a plague because they did not treat each other with appropriate respect. 
Now, this Talmudic passage does not mandate any mourning practices, which are not mentioned in the traditional sources before the 8th century. In the Middle Ages, this observance of mourning was reinforced by the persecutions and massacres of Jews in Europe during the Crusades. Another later influence was the massacre of Ukrainian Jewry in 1648, which also took place during the 50 days of the Omer. The obscurity for the reason for mourning is borne out by the discussion concerning the minor festival Lagba Omer. Lag occurs on the 33rd day of the Omer count. The name comes from the numerical values assigned to the Hebrew letter Lamed and Gimel. Lamed has an equivalent of 30 and Gimel 3. Hence, Log, 33-day Baomer. Log Baomer today is a minor festival celebrated usually by picnics and other outings during which morning practices are lifted. There is an old custom whereby children play with bows and arrows on this day. The most frequent explanation of Lagba Omer is that the plague that killed Akiva's students either ended on this day or suspended. Yet a closer examination of the different traditions about Lagba Omer and their connection to a varying practices in regard to mourning during the Omer period raises questions specifically about Lagba Omer and more generally about the Omer itself. If we look at the Shulchan Aruch, the classic code of Jewish law, we find a divergence of opinion between its authors. Joseph Caro writing on behalf of the Sephardic community and Rabbi Moses Isserlis writing on behalf of the Ashkenazic community. Based on the interpretation of the phrase pros atzeret, Carol believes that the mourning period of Omer should end 15 days, pros, before Atzeret, Shavuot. Therefore, beginning with 34th day of the Omer, we are allowed to hold wedding ceremonies. According to Caro, then Lagba Omer is the last day of the Omer and not a semi-holiday. Isserlis, on the other hand, states the more familiar tradition that the 33 day of the Omer marks a suspension or cessation of practices. Many authorities, so it's fair to say that all of these variations raise doubts about the nature of Lagba Omer and the mourning practices of the Omer. If indeed it is somehow related to a plague that, uh, that um, overwhelmed Rabbi Akiva's student, when was the plague and when did its story? Stop. What is Lagba Omer? A celebration of the end of the plague or a temporary suspension or even the literal last day of the plague? Many authorities have wrestled with these questions and have offered a variety of suggestions. Some believe that the story about Rabbi Akiva's students is a cryptic reference to the unsuccessful revolt of Bar Kokhba against the Romans. This revolt, 132 to 135, was supported by Akiva, and according to those scholars, the mourning practices were for those killed during the revolt, including some of Akiva's students. The custom of playing 
with bows and arrows fits this theory. Other scholars suggest that the story refers to the persecutions of Emperor Hadrian during which Akiva and other sages were martyred. Still others find the origin of mourning period in folk customs that have parallel in other cultures. One scholar cites Ovid to show that the Romans did not solemnize weddings during the month of May because the souls of the dead returned to earth uh, at that time and rites were held to appease them. Theodore Gaster, an expert on Jewish holidays, suggests that Lagba Omer is the equivalent of May Day. There is an old German and English custom of shooting bows and arrows at demons on May Day long before it was associated with the international Soviet revolution. Uh, more generally, Gaster suggests that mourning of the Omer period derives from uncertainty about the harvest, and this in turn was extended to human fertility by prohibiting weddings. The lack of clarity about Omer practices is reflected even in later authorities. Now, I'm not going to share with you that all of what the authorities say, but I am going to share with you a story because it is this story that has been placed on a parallel plane with the story of Rabbi Akiva. And it's a story about Rabbi Yochanan ben Yochan Shim, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So, let me share with you the story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And we can um, discuss whether this really is related to Lagba Omer, or whether this is simply, again, a grafting on to an ancient holiday. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was a fifth generation Tana. That means that he flourished in the year 135 CE to 170 of the Common Era. He was a student of Rabbi Akiva and a contemporary of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel II, who was the Nasi, the scholar president of the Sanhedrin and Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda ben Alai, among other contemporaries, all of whom are mentioned in the Talmud with great respect. He was a complex individual, a Torah giant who was influenced by his father, Yochai, by his great teacher, Rabbi Akiva, and his events of his day. According to some, his main achievement was the authorship of the Zohar, the Torah Hanistar, the hidden Torah that he received orally from Rabbi Akiva. The latter is described in the Talmud as the only one of a group of four outstanding Torah scholars who attempted the enter the Pardes, the orchard, which Kabbalists see as a metaphor for Kabbalah. His father was a man of considerable honor among the Jewish people. Yochai was a pacifist, was well-liked by the Romans, and a bitter opponent of the revolt against Rome, led by Rabbi Akiva 
and by the military leader known by the term Bar Kokhba. Although Shimon was extremely loyal to Rabbi Akiba, he projected some of his methods of Torah scholarship, such as the inference of laws from extra words, prepositions, and connectives in the text of Torah. He believed that for purposes of inferring laws of rules of Jewish law, the text should be interpreted plainly. Well, here's the story I want to um, tell you about. Once, when Shimon was together with Rabbi Yehuda ben Eli and Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, Rabbi Yehuda praised the Romans for their constructions of markets, bridges, and bathhouses. Just to remind you that in the second century, even after the collapse of the first Jewish revolt in 70, the Romans were still in charge of Judea. They had not changed the name to Palestine until after the second revolt. And there was an uneasy truce between the rabbinic leadership and Roman leadership. So this is a story found in Talmud, which, as you'll see, is about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but it's actually a story, of course, about the relationship between the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership. So, Rabbi Yehuda praised the Romans for their constructions of markets, bridge, and bathhouses. Uh, in a sense, um, infrastructure. That the Romans were providing infrastructure to a country that had just been devastated by a war. Rabbi Yossi remained silent. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said that all the engineering marvels were made for their own self-interest. When the Romans heard this, they rewarded Yehuda by appointing him to a position of government. Rabbi Yossi, he's the one who remained silent, was punished by being sent into exile. And for his disparagement of the Romans, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai was condemned to death. Now the Talmud goes on to tell us the rest of this story. To escape this punishment, Shimon fled with his son to a cave. They remained for 13 years studying the Torah together, both the Torah from Mount Sinai and, according to tradition, the Zohar. Rabbi Shimon wrote down the latter material for the first time called the Zohar, Splendor or Radiance, the primary book of the Zohar. Parenthetically, of course, we all know that this book was not written by Shimon Bar Yochai in the second century, but was written much, much later. But that's for another show. The first time Rabbi Shimon came out of the cave, he was completely out of tune with the people of his generation. He'd been there for 13 years. He observed Jews farming the land and engaged in other normal pursuits and made known his disapproval. According to the Talmud, he said, how can people engage themselves in matters of this world and neglect matters of the next world? Whereupon a bat kol, a heavenly voice was heard, which said, Bar Kachba, Bar Yochai, go back to the cave. You are no longer fit for the company of human beings. Rabbi Shimon went back to the cave, reoriented his perspective, and emerged again. 
This time he was able to interact with the people of his generation and became a great teacher of Torah revealed and hidden. Now, I would be misleading you if I didn't tell you that the story has much greater depth to it when you read it in its original in the Talmud. But uh, we do not have time for all the nuances of a Talmudic exploration this morning, so I've given you uh, a bit of an overview of the story. Lag Baomer, according to tradition, was the day of the Petira of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and according to his wishes, the yard site was to be observed as a holiday. This is done throughout the Jewish world, but its main celebration is at Meron, the burial place of Rabbi Shimon and his son Elazar, where thousands of Jews gather to light torches, sing several stanzas of a favorite song, and its chorus appear um, and dance in honor. So here's the song that they're supposed to be singing. Bar Yochai, you are united, you are fortunate with oil of joy from your fellows. Bar Yochai, in a goodly dwelling did you settle, on the day you ran, the day you fled, in rocky caves where you stopped, then you acquired your glory and your strength. Bar Yochai, like standing sheetim beans, the teachings of God they study, an extraordinary light is the light of the fire that they kindle, they your teachers will teach you. Bar Yochai, you come to a field of apples and entered it to pick confections. The mystery of Torah with blossoms and flowers, let us create man, was said because of you. Bar Yochai, at a wondrous light in lofty heights, you feared to stare for its great. Such hiddenness that one might call aught, you declared that no one eye should see you. Bar Yochai, you were anointed, you are fortunate with oil of joy from your fellows. Now, let me be clear, this mythical story of Bar Yochai is connected to Lag Omer because we're told, according to the Talmud, that Bar Yochai uh, died and his yard site is on Lag Omer, and that he died revealing the deepest Kabbalistic secrets which... Um, led to the writing of the Zophar. And when Bar Yochai comes out of his cave after 13 years, the first time he sees people doing uh, generally uh, everyday behaviors. Good. Now there's another aspect to the story, and that is the bows and arrows. It's said that according to tradition, when Rabbi Akiba's students were studying Torah, which was forbidden by the Romans after 70, they pretended to be out in the field with bows and arrows. And every time the Romans came to find them, they would pick up their bows and arrows um, and put down their books of Torah. The counting of the Omer has serious mystical reminders attached to it. Lagba Omer, much less so. It is simply the, th- the outgrowth of a tradition that says on the 33 day, 33 day, 33 day, day of the Omer, 33, 33rd day of the Omer, 
the mourning period is stopped for 24 hours. Now, I hope that you have a clear sense of the minor nature of Lagba Omer, but it is a good example of how over uh, 3,000 years, Jews have evolved certain traditions whose origins are lost in history. For Rabbi, for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten. I wish you a good day and shalom. Peace, love.